Father, we thank you for this time to be together uh, to read Galatians, and I thank you for each person who's here and pray that you would bless us as we uh, hear from you directly in your holy word, and we're so thankful to you for your church in this world. We're so thankful to you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by which we are saved, and we thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly uh, in your word and have given us these wonderful truths. May we never take for granted that we have the whole Bible in our possession, and we pray you would help us to value and treasure uh, the words of eternal life and to soak them in every day, to read the scriptures, to find someplace quiet, someplace where we can focus, even if it's just to read a chapter or two, and to, to pray for your guidance and to pray that you would help us to see and understand what you would have us to know so that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've given to us, and I pray that you'd bless us now as we read this great letter Uh, to the churches of Galatia. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, please turn your Bibles to the book of Galatians. And I've taught through the book of Galatians a couple times in the past. Uh, Back in in Ohio, I did the book of Galatians uh, twice at the church up there when I taught Sunday school and read a bunch of commentaries on it and um, a lot of scholars think that this may very well be the, the very first um, book that was written in the New Testament. And uh, Leon Morris, for example, dates it somewhere between 48 and 52 um, A.D., and that's what most, most uh, New Testament historians and scholars put it there. And it's a, it's a unique letter. It's a unique epistle. Um, can anyone think of what, what makes it somewhat unique? There's, there's several things, but why is it kind of unique in the New Testament? Yeah, the, the, the individual that wrote it, in fact, every commentary I've ever read about it, the guy that wrote it was very upset when he wrote it. <laughs> he was very unhappy when he wrote it. He was angry. <laughs> okay, what else, what else about it makes it unique? It's written to a, a region, rents of a specific city. Yeah, it's not to a church in a city like Colossae or Corinth or Rome. It's to the churches. It's written to a group of churches uh, in a whole region. Galatia is not a city. It's a region in Asia Minor. Okay, so he's, he had heard about uh, them departing from the gospel. And he gets very upset about it. And I've always thought, what an amazing thing to think that if Galatians is the very first, if, it, if it's not the first book that's inspired and breathed forth by God from the death of the prophet Malachi, it's real close to being one of the first. And the sixth verse of the first book in which God speaks to his people, um, there's anger in it, and there's astonishment, and Paul is really upset about these departures that he's seeing from the faith. Now, I wanted to read to you, before we start going verse by verse through Galatians, I want to read a quotation to you from a really good book. I highly recommend it. It's called The Reformation's Conflict with Rome, Why It Must Continue by Robert Raymond. And I remember reading this book when it first came out. It's actually endorsed on the back by R.C. Sproul and some other good Reformed theologians. But he um, has a little subheading here called The Apostolic Fathers and Their Doctrinal Trajectory. And just listen to to this quotation before we get into the text here. Just bear this in mind as we read Galatians. Paul's characterization of the Galatian churches you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ, Galatians 1.6, could quite appropriately be employed to describe the early church's doctrinal drift as a whole. For it is one of the saddest facts of church history that the post-apostolic churches 
soteriological deliverances quickly launched the church on a doctrinal trajectory in the area of soteriology that more and more moved virtually the entire church away from the pristine Pauline teaching on salvation by pure grace and justification by faith alone. Now, who can tell me, what does the word soteriology mean? Yeah, it's your, it's your theology of salvation. It comes from the, the Greek word soteria, which means salvation, and also soter means savior. So your soteriology is your understanding of salvation. So who can tell me, what, what is your Christology? What is that? Your doctrine of Christ, the person of Christ. What is your ecclesiology? Your doctrine of the church. Like, what is the church? What are the marks of the church? What are the officers of the church? Okay, uh, your eschatology. What's that? Your doctrine of, of end times. And it comes from the, the Greek word for last, which is eschatos. In fact, I remember making a flashcard for that one, eschatos. And it's like, oh, that's cool. That's, what, that's why they call it eschatology. Like, okay, so that's what he's talking about, soteriology. The, and he's right. I'm, when I took church history, and even I have J.B. Lightfoot's it's a single volume translation of the very first Christian writers after the apostles died. And you get a lot of rehashings of what you have in scripture. A lot, a lot of them repeat what they, what they learned from what, whatever books of the Bible were available to them. But there's no question that they're already starting to drift away uh, from the purity of the gospel. And within the, the first three or four centuries, you have a, a really a really odd, almost superstitious view of baptism comes in. You have odd views on the Lord's Supper. And you have all, all kinds of, of odd doctrinal trajectories that come in there very early on. And, and it is a sad thing, as, as Dr. Raymond points out here. But listen to what he goes on to say. And I'm not referring to the relatively insignificant kinds of errors that often occur when any uninspired theologian begins to comment upon the scriptures. I am talking about serious doctrinal heresy. For from the apostolic fathers onward, the church fell more and more into serious soteriological error, with grace and faith giving way to legalism and the doing of good works as the pronounced way of salvation. And unevangelical gnomism runs virtually unabated through the writings of these church fathers. Now, what does the word nomism mean? Does anyone know what that means? Nomism? Law. Having to do with the law. Because the Greek word for law is the word namos. Okay, so when theologians talk about th- that person's a neonomian, that means that they're fi- they have found some way to get our law keeping into the salvation equation. Okay? Who, who are some neonomians today that I have denounced that you know about? D- Wilson, Piper, yeah, those, they're neonomians. And that, that's, a, that's a theological term. You need to know what that, what that word means. People who are... I'm sorry? The Christian church. The offshoot of the Church of Christ. Yeah, they're very neonomian. Yeah, yeah. So what he's saying is the church really starts to drift into, the, into all different kinds of gnomism early on. Not even fully in Augustine in the 5th century. And only upon rare later occasion after him. For example... Gottschalk. Anyone here ever heard of Gottschalk? <laughs> if, you, if you read uh, Stephen Lawson's books about a, a long line of godly men, he goes from century after century. You always have guys that get it right. Like there are people, there are witnesses in every century after the apostles dies, guys, guys that looked in scripture and when they're looking at Romans, they see it. But then it's not consistent with their other views on baptism and the Lord's Supper and, and things like that. And for example, one, one of the early church fathers is a fellow named John Chrysostom. Anyone here ever heard of John Chrysostom? Now, his theology is very, is very strange in some places, but he preached expositorily through the book of Romans. And you can read his sermons on Romans. 
And when he preaches through Romans 4, and this is like in, this is long ago. This is a thousand years before the Reformation. You know what phrase he uses over and over and over again in his sermons on Romans 4? Sola fide, sola fide, sola fide. It's constant. And I know that drives Eastern Orthodox people crazy because they love him and they think he's like their guy. But I'm like, have you ever read his sermons on Romans 4? When his nose was down in the text, he, he got it right. And so you see these guys. I like Gottschalk. Gottschalk is a, as I recall, a ninth century theologian who was publicly beaten and sentenced to life in prison for one statement that he made. Christ died only for the elect. <laughs> publicly beaten and sentenced to life in prison. Uh, for that. So Gottschalk, and then later you have a guy named um, Thomas Bradwardine, John Wycliffe, John Huss, was the voice of Paul clearly heard again before the 16th century magisterial reformation, where it was then heard in the powerful preaching, teaching, and writing of Martin Luther and John Calvin. Many authorities might be cited in support of this general observation. The great, admittedly liberal, Richelian church historian Adolf von Harnack you got to love that guy's name. These are German liberals have the best names for heretics. It's like Adolf von Harnack and um, what are some of the other ones? Boltmann and um, there's, there's some other really, really fun ones. Um, who taught at the University of Berlin from 1889 to 1921. He wrote extensively on this stuff. And he gives a quotation from a fellow named Kenneth Scott um, S. Scott Kirk. And this is the last quotation I'm going to read to you. Listen to this quote. St. Paul's indignant wonder was evoked by the reversion of a small province of the Christian church, Galatia, to the legalistic spirit of the Jewish religion. Had he lived half a century or a century later, his cause for amazement would have been increased a hundredfold. The example of the Galatians might be thought to have infected the entire Christian church. Writer after writer seems to have little other interest than to express the genius of Christianity wholly in terms of law and obedience, reward and punishment. And he goes on from there. He gives a bunch of quotations from Louis Burkhoff and B.B. Warfield and other historians of Christian thought. But I share that with you by way of introduction uh, to point out to you that every generation of Christian people has to fight the same battles and the reason Paul spells out all these different ways that you can get the gospel wrong is because what we will see and what our kids will see and our grandkids will see is just reworkings of the same things you see in Galatians. It really is remarkable how Paul deals with every way you can get the doctrine wrong by getting it right. In Galatians, he shows you here's what the teaching is, and he's very angry. He is very upset at how quickly they deserted the, the clean, pristine, we are justified by faith in Christ because it's Christ that keeps the law. It's Christ who bore the curse for us. It's nothing we do. And then we, we do good works as, as the fruits of the Spirit. Remember, anyone here memorized Galatians 5, 22 and 23 when you were a kid? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Okay, that's the fruit that the Spirit bears. That's not how we're saved. And, and yet it seems like every generation is having to constantly deal with the, the intrusion of fruit into the salvation equation, but that is to really say that what Christ did is not sufficient to save us. And that's the thing that I, I can tell you from my part as a minister of the gospel that I'm very zealous to make sure is always protected. Anytime you hear any kind of chipping away at that what Christ did by itself is what saves us, that should get our, our blood going a little bit, just like Paul's, okay? All right, so let's look at verse 1 here. And I love the way he introduces himself in this. Because this is, this is somewhat different from the way he normally does this in his other letters. 
Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. Now, why do you think he starts out immediately? Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. That's not in any of his other letters. He says that here. Yes, he's establishing, I am an apostle and I was called to be one, not by any human beings of this world, but by Christ. Okay? And as he's going to go on to say in these early chapters of Galatians, he really establishes the thing that it should, it gives me, the, I'm getting the chills just thinking about it. What he tells the Galatian churches in this letter, he learned directly from Jesus. Not from Peter, not from John, not from James. Not from any of the other apostles. He didn't even meet with any of them before he went out and started preaching. So the gospel message that he spells out in great detail here, he learned directly from that encounter he had with Christ. And I remember when, when we went through Galatians when I was in seminary, I asked the question of the professor. I said, so was it kind of like a matrix download of information to his brain? Like, how did that work? Yeah, you got anybody here see the matrix? Remember how they learned Kung Fu and they learned everything? They just stick the little thing in the back of the head and, and then all the information's there. Like, is that how it happened? Did God just like download the gospel into Paul's brain or did, they, did he actually talk to Jesus about it or, or what? But his point is, the source of what I'm telling you is directly from the horse's mouth, in effect, is what he's saying. So that's why he's emphasizing, I am an apostle not from man nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. To the churches of Galatia. Okay, so remember, Galatia is a region. It's not a city like Colossae, Philippi, or Corinth, or Rome, or Thessalonica. It's a region, and he's writing to a whole group of churches, a province of churches there. Okay, now right out of the gate, he, he does his greeting that he usually does. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why do those two terms go together? Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace. Because you can't have peace without grace. That's right. Because it's through the grace of God in Jesus Christ that we have peace. And the thing about that term peace that's used there, that Greek term eirene, is a translation of the Hebrew term shalom. And shalom refers not just to a cessation of hostilities, but rather to a wholeness of relationship. So if, we, if, I, if you and I have shalom, we have close, tight communion with each other. So before we were God's enemies, we were not at peace with him. We were at war with him. But once the grace of God comes in Jesus Christ and we trust only in him, now we who were once his enemies and once at war with him, now we have peace with God. We have shalom with God. Okay, and that's, that was a term that, for Luther was really special, was really, really important to him. You know, I actually learned uh, something recently. Um, did you know that Luther wrote a commentary on Galatians twice? <laughs> he actually wrote two commentaries on it. He wrote one in like 1519 and then years later. And uh, he was asked once, what, what is your favorite book, your own personal favorite book that you, that you wrote? And because he wrote a lot of stuff. And he said, my Galatians commentary my last Galatians commentary is my Katerina Von Bora. And who's Katerina Von Bora? His wife's name. <laughs> okay, because he, he loved Galatians that much. Because Galatians was one of the books that really helped him see what God demands from us in the law 
he doesn't expect us to produce. Jesus does it for us. All we do is rest upon it. Okay, so he loved this, this letter. Did it change between editions? Um, I don't think so. I think that he was, he was fully mature in his thinking on, on the gospel. Yeah. I don't think there's ever been anyone that's understood the gospel, like the doctrine of justification, better than he did. Um, in fact, there's a little paperback book, which, of course, is out of print. Um, it's called Luther on Justification by a Lutheran uh, theologian named Robin Lever. That little book is a jewel. Because he combed through like all 55 volumes of Luther's works and pulled all of his best stuff about justification. It's great stuff. He, he really gets the gospel. <clears throat> okay, verse 4. Now, I love this. He kind of immediately wants to start getting into the gospel immediately. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So right there, you have substitutionary atonement who gave himself in behalf of our sins. Okay, it's a very, very important phrase there, that idea of substitution. Uh, the idea that when Christ suffered, it was a vicarious suffering. It was in behalf of our sins that he would deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, in his other letters... I mean, even, even in Corinth, now, from what you know of your New Testament, what was going on in Corinth? Excuse me. Licentiousness. Licentiousness. What else? There's all kinds of stuff. Bad. They were eating things sacrificed to idols. And- that, wounding each other's consciences, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Remember the opening chapter? What were people saying? I am of Paul. I am of Apollo. There's factionalism going on. And yet, he's very warm in his greeting to them. And, you know, he's, he, he says nice things to them. And, he, and he's got encouraging things. Paul doesn't do that in this letter. The introduction is the shortest introduction of all of Paul's letters. I mean, it's five verses, and then immediately he wants to get right into them here. Okay, it's not, I've heard about your great faith. It's being reported throughout the whole world. He doesn't do any of that here. He just immediately launches into verse 6. You see it? I marvel in that verb... Thalmazo means astonished. I'm shocked. I, I cannot believe how fast you guys did this. How fast you've abandoned what I taught you when I, when I preached to you. I am marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Okay, now one thing that, that we have to bear in mind with this is that there's, there's the true gospel and then there's lots of competitors to the true gospel that call themselves the gospel. And how do we know which one's right? The one that's biblical, the one that follows the teaching of scripture. Okay, so there's different gospels that are out there. And one thing that, that's so important is that the, the words, gospel, Jesus, saved, justified, if they're not defined biblically, they don't really mean anything then. So we can come up with documents and like statements that we understand differently if we understand all the key terms differently but we're not really united unless we have the same understanding of the gospel and paul hammers this point here uh, in fact i wanted to share with you and, and i want to share a comment i i heard i actually did a whole video responding to this but someone asked the question of someone who's a big fan of J.R.R. tolkien and gk chesterton you guys know who J.R.R. tolkien and gk chesterton are what what do they both have in common what are they the roman catholics 
And this guy, you know, is ostensibly, you know, claims to be a Protestant. And he was asked the question, so what do you think about Chesterton and Tolkien? Were, were they saved? And this guy said, well, the reason that they're saved is because we're not saved by works. We're not saved by our doctrinal works. And so if you're going to say that they have to get it right to go to heaven, then that's a form of work salvation. What did you say? Clever. Clever. What's wrong with that? Is that how the Apostle Paul thinks? Does he say, yeah, the Judaizers, they're our brothers. Because we're not saved by works. We're not saved by our doctrinal works. It's precisely the doctrine that he's going after. Of course. Yeah. Anyone know who said that? Dougie Wilson. Again. Same thing. I, I, I remember listening. Someone forwarded me that link and I listened to it and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And I pointed out, that opens the door for universalism. How does that open the door for universalism? Everybody's going to heaven. How? That is the logical conclusion of that statement. It really doesn't matter what you believe, apparently. We're not saved by our doctrinal works. So that, to say that we have to have the right gospel and believe the right gospel, that's a form of work salvation. That is one of the most inane things I've ever heard in my entire life so far as a, as a Christian. And it's perfectly false. Look at verse 6. Look at the, what the Holy Spirit says. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or change the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, what is that? That's the Greek verb anatithemi. What does that mean? Accursed. Damned? Damned to hell. He's saying, may the fire of God's judgment consume him on the spot. And he's saying that about himself. If I come back and tell you something other than what I originally preached to you, may I be accursed. If an angel comes and tells you something different, may that angel be accursed. If another apostle, if any teacher comes and tells you something other than what I preach to you, let them be accursed. And then verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Notice too that it's the text of scripture and it's the message that's infallible and inspired, not necessarily the apostles always. Okay, can apostles make mistakes? Think, think about what are we about to read about in the next chapter? Who, I'm sorry? Peter. Peter. Yeah. And Paul says, when, he, when I saw that they were not straightforward about what? About the gospel. He rebuked Peter. Peter, the apostle, uh, made errors, made mistakes, and thankfully was willing to accept correction. But why is Paul so exercised about this? I mean, he calls down... The, the curse of God twice in successive verses here. Why, why is he so exercised like this? You don't get the gospel, right? You don't get That's right. That's right. If you die trusting that your circumcision or your dietary laws, or if you die relying on something in addition to Christ or alongside of Christ, you're not right with God. That's what, what Paul's whole point here is you're outside the kingdom of God if you don't understand this right okay all right um 
Look at verse 10. For do I now please men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Y'all can come over here if you want to. (laughs) Okay, now notice, why is he talking about pleasing men or pleasing God here? What what does the natural man want you to preach to him about? What does the natural man want, want to hear? That, that he can do it, right? That he can pull it off. But if you preach the truth, if you preach the true gospel, you're going to have people that will be very exercised and upset about it. Okay? He's saying, I'm not trying to please men. I'm not trying to persuade men or please men. I'm not trying to please men. I'm trying to please God. And if I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. Okay, verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so here again, this is as as pure gospel as you could possibly get. He's telling you, this is what I learned directly from the Lord Jesus. I didn't meet with Peter or any of the other apostles. This is directly from Jesus that I'm telling you here. Okay, verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how... I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Okay, so when Paul was converted, when he came to Christ there on the road to Damascus and he, is, he loses his sight for three days and then he's baptized. Remember the whole, he tell, relates that story to, I think it was a, to a, either, it was, I think it was to King Agrippa. That Ananias comes and baptizes him. Paul immediately gets to work, doesn't he? Because he knows what the gospel is and he knows what it is having never spoken to Peter or John or any of the other apostles. Okay, so you see what he's doing here? I'm an apostle not from men nor through men. I didn't learn this from men. I was not taught this from men. I didn't even meet with the other apostles first. What he's establishing is what I preach to you, I learned directly from Christ, and I can't believe you guys are already turning away from it. And that's why he's so upset. Okay, verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remain with him 15 days But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Okay, so what, what do you think, like, what, what do we learn here in the opening chapter? What are the kind of, the, what's the main punch of what he's saying here? Or just a few main things he's trying to get across? Don't be shy. I'm sorry? He was taught by God. That's right. He was taught what he, what he preached to them directly by God. What else? That's right. I didn't, adult, I didn't mess it up. I didn't tinker with it at all. I mean, that's kind of one of the things when you read his pastoral letters to Timothy, he, he tells them constantly, watch your life and doctrine. Hold fast the faithful word. Don't let people tinker or fiddle with the content of the message. Yes, sir. Isn't 
Isn't it, you're right, isn't it safe to say the Catholic Church gets this one wrong too? They think apostolic succession is repeated, but it's not like Paul. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. I never realized that because when you read it, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's not an apostolic succession of office. It's an apostolic succession of, of doctrine and truth. And the thing is, what what I've said to converse to orthodoxy and to Rome is, for my part, I couldn't care less if you can trace ordinations all the way back to the apostles. I don't care about that. What I want to know is, do you teach what the apostles taught? Okay, because there are plenty of people. I mean, Paul himself said, some of the guys that we ordained and put in these churches, they're going to turn out to be savage wolves. Don't listen to them. And how do you know who the savage wolves are and, who, and who's right? You go to the word of God. You look at the gospel. You look at what scripture says about this stuff. So, yeah, to me, the apostolic succession argument just has no authority, no weight at all, especially when you think about those who claim that argument, the kinds of things they teach about purgatory and the Virgin Mary and justification by grace-infused works and things like that. It's not scriptural. I'm sorry? Paul destroys purgatory Yeah, totally. Yep. Christ gave himself for our sins. We don't, we don't give ourselves for our sins. We don't suffer ourselves. But anything else in chapter 1 that, that jumps out at you is important? His yes, sir. Authority. I'm sorry? His authority. Yeah. His apostolic authority. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's only one true gospel, and any other is not the true gospel. And That's right. This, this was, would be a, what we consider a damnable heresy. Yes. You, you err here, and there's no heaven. There's no That's right. That's right. That's right. And one of the um, questions I've, I've been thinking about, what are good questions to ask uh, ministerial candidates or lic- licensed people, people that are being examined for licensure? One of the questions I want to always ask from now on is, can you off the top of your head name three damnable heresies? J- just to see, number one, does the guy even think there's such a thing as, as damnable heresy? Plus, it should be easy to answer, right? So let me ask you all, what are three damnable heresies? Okay, you just name one, wrong gospel. You get justification by something other than faith in Christ or alongside of that. What are some other damnable heresies? Mess up the nature of Christ. I'm sorry? Mess up the nature of Christ. Yeah, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of God. If you get the, have the wrong God, the wrong gospel. Okay, what else? Mess up the atonement. The atonement, sure. You think it's a moral influence or something? Yes, sir? Original sin. Yeah, sure. Original sin, that, that, that's fatal. If you don't have the doctrine of sin right, you're not going to get the gospel right, you know? Okay. The Trinity, the triune nature of God, sure, absolutely. Virgin I'm sorry? Virgin the virgin birth of Christ. The Blasphemy resurrection. The I'm sorry? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Blasphemy against God. But he's, the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to Christ. Mm-hmm. So if you blaspheme him, you're cutting yourself off from the only source. Mm-hmm. We're all ready to be licensed. Uh, what? <laughs> you guys have done better than some some candidates. I I myself have examined actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, oh, just be clear. Like, always try to be clear in your theology and what what you're saying. Don't don't leave yourself. I, in fact, I was listening to um lectures to my students by Charles Spurgeon. I should have listened to that early in the morning when I'm the only one awake because it just makes me loud because I just like yell amen and like start throwing things around the house but he he made the comment he said he's like men men and ministers do not labor to be to be understood labor to be impossible to misunderstand and i was like man someone's got to make a plaque out of that one like make it impossible for people not to get you okay 
So that's one thing you love about Paul. He's simple and straightforward in what he's saying, and I just love that about him. Okay, so there's, there's only one gospel. Anything, any deviation from the gospel, as Paul says, is not the gospel, is, is not another gospel because there's only one. And if you preach that or teach it or promote it, then you're accursed. You're under the, the wrath of God. Okay, yes, sir. That's right. And what it makes me think of is when you turn the TV on to uh, those channels that play all that Christian, quotes garbage, yes. bad teaching, you get large groups of people sitting there listening to this woman yeah. or male, whichever it is. Right. And they think, first of all, they don't understand the gospel because when you hear what they're saying, it's garbage. Yeah. But they don't even understand that first of God's condemnation. Right, right. Yeah, there's no neutrality on, on this, this issue. As Jesus said, you're either for or against him. Um, yeah. Okay. Anything else from chapter 1? Yes, ma'am. It seems like he's laying out very clearly where, where are you standing? Is it on man's word or on God's word? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You can't have sort of a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, you can't mix the two things. They're they're really like oil and water. And you know, I want I would say as as far as the Reformation and, and Catholicism, one thing that I I respect in on in one sense the theologians of the Roman Catholic Church that were alive during the Counter Reformation when they responded to the Reformation at the Council of Trent because they understood something that a lot of people today don't understand, and that is. One of us is under the curse of God. <laughs> One of us is wrong. Okay? You can't say they're both right. Theologians of Rome and all the reformers understood either you guys or us are under the anathema of God in Galatians 1. Now, they both said, it's you. You guys are the ones that are, that are under the anathema of God. But at least they understood that somebody was wrong on that. You live in the age of anti-antithesis. Nobody likes conflict. Nobody has any stomach for it. But if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be devoted to the word of God and to the gospel. You're going to have to enter the lists of of that kind of conflict and just recognize that there's only one gospel that can save people. It comes directly from God on his authority, and you can't mix it with other things. And like Tom said, if you lose this, what's the point of even having church? What's the point of doing this? You know, if I don't get this right, you know, you shouldn't listen really to anything else that I have to say. Okay, because how we're made right with God is is the foundation, is the centerpiece. Yes, sir? A, a corollary, it seems to me, is um, verse 7, the phrase, the gospel of Christ. Mm. It's God's, it's Christ's gospel, so therefore we have no authority, no wherewithal to change it. Yes. And it's yeah. only those who change it that are obviously not of him. Yes. Yep. This coming Sunday, um, Jim, Baird, Jim Baird comes up to me after, the, after I preached on elder and deacon vows. He's like, so are you going to beat up on yourself next Sunday? I said, yes, I'm doing a sermon on, on pastor vows. But I'll tell you what, looking at those pastor vows, I just finished that, my uh, AM sermon um, this afternoon. But I was thinking about um, Charles Spurgeon in, in that book, um, Lectures to My Students. Chapter, le- lecture number 16 is called The Need for Decisions for the Truth. And he's not talking about getting decisions for, at like a revival meeting. He means being decided this is what's true, and therefore everything contrary to it's false. And there's just some hilarious 
uh, quotations. In fact, let me since I was looking at that in my Kindle, it should pull it up right where I was looking at it. I want to read to you just real quick a couple of Spurgeon quotes because they're hilarious. And, and he's right on the money, if I can find it here. Hold on one second. That's one cool thing about the Kindle app is it'll remember where you were no matter what other gadget you were looking at it. Yes. Do I want to go to my most recent page? Yes, I do. Okay, cool. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Listen, listen to this. Okay. He says, we have a fixed faith to preach, my brethren, and we are sent forth with a definite message from God. We are not, uh, or we, we are not le- left to fabricate the message as we go along. We're not sent forth by our master with a general commission arranged in this fashion. As you shall think in your heart and invent in your head, so preach. Keep abreast of the times. Whatever the people want to hear, tell them that and they shall be saved. Verily, we read not so. There is something definite in the Bible. It is not quite a lump of wax to be shaped at our will or a roll of cloth to be cut according to the prevailing fashion. Your great thinkers evidently look upon the scriptures as a box of letters for them to play with and what and make what they like of or a wizard's bottle out of which they may pour anything they choose from atheism up to spiritualism. And listen to this. I am too old fashioned to fall down and worship this theory. There is something told me in the Bible, told me for certain, not put before me with a but and a perhaps and an if and a maybe and 50,000 suspicions behind it. So that really the long and the short of it is that it may not be so at all, but revealed to me as an infallible fact, which must be believed the opposite of which is deadly error and comes from the father of lies. Man, we need people to think like this. Listen to this. Believing, therefore, that there is such a thing as truth and such a thing as falsehood, that there are truths in the Bible, and that the gospel consists in something definite, which is to be believed by men, it becomes us to be decided as to what we teach and to teach it in a decided manner. We have to deal with men who will be either lost or saved, and they certainly will not be saved by erroneous doctrine. We have to deal with God, whose servants we are, and we will not be honored by our delivering, and he will not be honored by our delivering falsehoods. Neither will he give us a reward and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast mangled the gospel as judiciously as any man that ever lived before thee. (laughs) I love that. Okay, so I'm going to read the same quote Sunday, so just brace yourself for it. Okay, so yeah, chapter one, a lot of great stuff there. I mean, look at, see verse 18, and it's kind of towards the end there. He's kind of setting up here. After three years, then I went and saw Peter. I mean, so think about that. He's out doing evangelism and church planning and doing his thing for three years before he ever even talked to one of the apostles, and he's preaching the one true gospel during that whole time. Okay, so that's kind of what he's uh, hammering at there. All right, let's look at chapter two a little bit, and then we'll, we'll do like just a few verses, and then we'll, be, we'll knock off. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel. Notice how he just keeps referring to it. There's like the gospel, that gospel, the true one he keeps talking about, when I preached, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And I was getting right into the controversy here. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage 
to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Okay, when you have error on this level, you need to deal with it quickly, right? It's got to be addressed quickly. There's a, another verse later on in Galatians, I think of Galatians 5, 9, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay, you have a little bit of this, it's going to work its way through and, and destroy everything if you, guys, if you don't take care of it quickly. And that's why Paul wrote this letter quickly to them and passionately, and it's short and choppy and um, gets right to the point. And also notice, there are false brethren. Okay, and he, he's pointing out to them, there will be times there will be false brethren in the church. What, what is a false brother? We're told that that word, pseudadelphoi, like a, a pseudonym is a false name. So a pseudadelphos is a false brother. What's a false brother? One who pretends. To yeah, be an actor. Not. I'm sorry? One who pretends to be, but it's not. That's right. They, they're a false brother. They call themselves your brother. They call themselves Christians, but they, they are not. Okay, so yes, you want to judge with charity as much as possible. But if people are getting this wrong, they're false brothers then. Okay, so that's a real important um, verse of, of scripture. And at verse five is another one, and we'll, we'll stop at, at verse five. But to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Uh, yes, sir. How much do you think the misunderstanding of judgment or judging people brings all this about? Not unless you judge. Oh, a lot. Kind of stuff where we yeah. Christian society. Yeah, a couple things. Number one, Matthew 7, where that's where it says, judge not, lest ye be judged, and with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. <clears throat> what he's condemning there is not discernment. He's condemning hypocritical judgment. If you judge hypocritically, obviously, if I hold someone else to a standard I don't hold myself to, that's wrong for me to do that. But Jesus also says in other places that we are to judge with righteous judgment. And Philippians chapter 2 says, Paul says, I pray that your love may abound more and more that you might be able to judge. Meaning, I want you to be discerning. If your love abounds more and more and your love for God, your love for his word, you will be wise and discerning. And we are required by God to be able to identify that which is false. And to, and to denounce it and to distance ourselves from it. And name names. That's right. Paul did it constantly. I'm sorry? Without a doubt. Mm -hmm. People, yeah, that's another part of the anti-antithesis thing. You can't, you can't judge anything, or you can't pass judgment at all. But I want you to think about something. I've actually, if you may recall, I have preached on this. God's word expects every one of us to be able to identify fools, the wicked, sluggards. What are some other really low epithets? I mean, to pass these kinds of judgments on people, like from the Proverbs and other places... I'm sorry? Yeah. Worthless persons? Oh, that's just terrible. I mean, to think that, but we're, we're told how to identify them. You know, and it's, it's not that, well, we're, we're better than them, but we are told to keep your distance from people like this or like that. We're told if people don't bow to the truth and they're not submissive to the truth from such people, turn away. You know, and Paul says you got to get these people out. You have, to, you have to get them, remove them from your churches because they'll, they'll destroy it. So. Yeah, that's not, that doesn't sell well uh, today, but well, you can't. Sell yeah, you, but you can't read scripture and miss it. I mean, it's it's all over the place in, in God's word. We're supposed to be wise and discerning, as as innocent as doves, but as as wise as serpents. 
so we understand the, the schemes and plots of, of the enemy. So, okay, any, any other thoughts or comments, questions? Yes, sir? I just thought it was interesting, like, how it, it's, he's reading, like, with almost like a warlike language, but he's talking about how they would come spying in to yeah. under bondage. That's a good you know, point. It's not even so much like these people are, like, we need to work through our issues with them. It's like, no, this is a war. They're spies. They're coming in. Yeah, every time I read verse 4, I think of one of those stealth fighters, one of those black jets that drop nuclear bombs or whatever. And that's what they are. They're like spiritual terrorists. See, you're right. It's not, you know, see if they'll go over to, you know, the, the coffee shop in Jerusalem and have a cup of coffee so you can discuss your differences. To, to Paul, these are the enemy. This is the enemy. So, yeah, that's a great point, Joseph. Very, very well said. Yes, sir? I think just buttressing your point is, Heretics don't come and show up with a scarlet H on their shirt. That's what we have to be discerning. Yeah. And it's it, comparing their teaching. We have to be the Bereans. That's right. And, uh, yeah. People ask me what Christian college or seminary to go to, and I say, I can't give you one to go to, but you have wherever you go, you have to be a Berean. Yeah, you got to be wise and discerning. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where did that Doug Wilson quote? I'm sorry. Where did the Doug Wilson quote? It's on YouTube. Just, just do a YouTube search on Doug Wilson, Chesterton, and Tolkien. It's one of the most inane interviews I have ever heard. Ever. I, I have never heard a, a professing Christian make an argument like that. Well, they're, they're saved because we're not saved by, by works. Protestants are right. We're not saved by our doctrinal works. And so we don't want to say they're doing something wrong that would make them not saved. I thought, oh, good grief. Are you serious? You, you could use that argument to justify any teaching? I mean, what, what are you saying? Is there going to be a Trinity exam before you get into heaven or a sola fide test before you get into heaven? You know, R.C. Sproul um, addressed that kind of thinking where people were saying, well, you're not, you're not justified by articulating the doctrine correctly. You're not justified by the doctrine of justification. And Sproul said, if there's ever been a doctrine of the Christian faith that would mitigate against justification by the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it's justification by faith alone. Because we're calling upon people not to sit down and write it out perfectly. I actually understood the gospel before I, I knew it in terms of justification. If you had pressed me in my pre-Reformation days, I would have said, no, it's nothing, nothing I do at all. It's what Christ has done. Jesus died for my sins, and I'm, only, I'm trusting only in him. If they had said, well, what, what is justification? I would have said it has something to do with the, the margin alignments in Microsoft Word. <laughs> I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. But when I, when I heard it described and was walked through the text, yeah, that, that's, that's a lot clearer, a lot cleaner than I was in my understanding before. But my confidence for getting into heaven was never in Christ plus my works or Christ plus anything I was doing. So Christians will die trusting only in Jesus, not Jesus plus anything else. And it, if there, if a book... Um, <clears throat> I always hesitate to recommend John Owen because he's kind of painful. Anyone here ever tried to suffer through John Owen? He's well worth it because he's such a genius of a, of a man. Yeah, I know you've like been trying to translate Owen into modern English. Um, he wrote a really big book. It's like 540 pages long called uh, On the Doctrine of Justification by Faith Alone. And the beginning of that book was life-altering. It's so brilliant. And Owen says, you know, for the longest time, Rome has said, no one taught this with the clarity that Luther and Calvin and, and that we're teaching it today. No one ever taught this the way, in exactly the same way that you guys teach it. And Owen makes the point, God's people have always known 
how to put their faith in Christ alone because they're taught by the Holy Spirit how to do it. And I thought, that's exactly my own experience. My confidence for getting into heaven from the day I was saved was in Jesus and nothing else. I didn't really know the doctrine of justification. I, I probably wouldn't even, even know what the word imputation means. But I trusted only in Jesus because I was taught by God how to do it. Isn't that so encouraging? I thought, man, as much as you have to suffer through Owen, and Owen even tells you, he, he even says at the beginning of some of his books, if you're into flowery rhetoric and flowery speech and you like you know, guys that write in a witty and highfalutin way, he says, I bid thee farewell. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're willing to, to suffer through him, the guy was a genius of a man. He really was. He really was. Okay, any other thoughts or comments? Isn't this fun? I just love going through. Yeah. Patrick was, before I knew anything, was what gives God more glory? Doing it all. Yeah. Do it. Yeah, of course. Just, that, yeah. That was the simplicity of yes. Yeah. How the Holy Spirit works. Yep. Yeah. That he when he opens your eyes, it's unmistakable. Yeah, you you will see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, young, watching a young guy go from not understanding, and I remember the day he finally clicked, and he got it. He said, he, he all of a sudden said, "Yeah, if I." If I thought that anything, like anything at all that I did would contribute to getting into heaven, then by, by thinking that, I would be saying what Christ did was not enough, wouldn't I? I was like, you got it. It's like, finally, it clicked. He's got it. So, okay. All right, so we'll pick up at Galatians 2.6 next time. Um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for this time to be together to open your word. It's it's exhilarating to look at what you have said in scripture. And it is truly a blessing uh, to know the true gospel, to know who who your son is, and to have eternal life. And to know that we're declared righteous once for all. We're united to him by faith alone, and his righteousness is on our account. And his cross fully satisfies divine justice in our behalf, so that no charge of sin will ever be brought against us. May we glory in that great truth and defend it and um, value it more than anything in the world, including our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.